0: Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. King was born in 1929, and if he were alive today, he would be celebrating his 92nd birthday. I'm always shocked to remember that he was only 39 years old when he was assassinated. So we have potentially been robbed of those years from 39 to 92 and beyond. His prophetic activism for peace and justice ended tragically early. It's also important to remember that Dr. King did not accomplish everything on his own. And this year's MLK Day also brings to mind other giants of the civil rights movement from the Atlanta area who died this past year. I'll share my screen with you just to um, bring their faces to mind as well as their names. The first is the Reverend Joseph Lowry, often called the Dean of the Civil Rights Movement. He died in March. Or Representative John Lewis, who challenged us to carry on his legacy of getting into good trouble. He died in July. Or the Reverend C.T. Vivian, who Dr. King once called the greatest preacher to ever live. It's pretty good if Dr. King is calling you the greatest preacher to ever live. He died on the same day as Representative Lewis um, in July. Along these lines, on this MLK weekend that finds us amid significant societal upheaval, it seems like an auspicious time to do something that I've considered doing for many years which is to consider the life and legacy of Dr. King not in isolation, but in conversation with the life and legacy of his compatriot and colleague in the struggle for human rights, Malcolm X. I first started thinking about juxtaposing these two figures in seminary when I read Martin and Malcolm and America, a dream or a nightmare by the Black liberation theologian James Cone which was first published 30 years ago in 1991. I was motivated to finally get around to preaching on this topic when I saw that Peniel Joseph, a history professor at the University of Texas at Austin had published a new book titled The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. To briefly go back and start at the beginning, Malcolm and Martin were born a little more than four years apart in 1925 and uh, 1929, respectively. They were killed a little more than three years apart. Both men were only 39 years old when they died. That's three years younger than I am now. And they really were colleagues in the struggle for black dignity with the years of their public work um, overlap during an overlapping time period. So for Malcolm X, that was 1952 to 1965. And for King, it was 1955, starting with the Montgomery bus boycott to his death in 68. Now, as colleagues sometimes do, they certainly had significant differences. And although they are often depicted as foils for one another, that Dichotomy misses how they also influenced one another as well and that they ultimately came to share the same goal, what our UU6 principle calls the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Now, in particular, it's not always appreciated that Malcolm X made um, some of what Dr. King accomplished possible. Although Dr. King was quite radical, he often seemed comparatively moderate in contrast to Malcolm X. As historian Peniel Joseph has said, King's conciliatory image, it masked The beating heart of a political radical who believed in social democracy, privately railed against economic injustice, and viewed nonviolence as a muscular and coercive tactic with world-changing potential. Likewise, too sharp a focus on Dr. King can obscure all the ways that Malcolm X was also a brilliant activist, organizer, and intellectual. Let me give you an example of this interweaving dynamic between the two. If you read the entirety of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech from the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom, not just the famous ending, uh, what you'll find is some radical demands that are less well known. Notice, for instance, the subtext of reparations and the call not to slow roll the movement um, to equality in this segment of King's speech. He said, America has given the Negro people a bad check a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give, give us, upon demand, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We've also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now, This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. And of course, we've seen play out in current events all that has transpired from our failure to make real the promises of democracy. So taken by themselves, these uh, are strong words from Dr. King, especially for 1963. But let's, let's zoom out. Let's consider how much less strident King's words sound compared to what Malcolm X was saying more than a year earlier in May of 1962. Instead of a dream, Malcolm X says, what is looked upon as an American dream for white people has long been an American nightmare for black people. There was a way in which Malcolm X and Dr. King were two sides of the same coin, um, putting different uh, emphases. But it's important not to stop there with Malcolm's um, comparatively strong radicality. We need to keep following the strand and notice at least one more important twist that's often left off of the story. Let's fast forward a few years, almost three years after Malcolm X's assassination in 1965, and a little more than three months before Dr. King would himself be assassinated. In December of 1967, Dr. King's Christmas Sermon for Peace included powerful words that show some of the ways that Dr. King and Malcolm X were increasingly converging. He said that in 1963 in Washington, D.C., I tried to talk to the nation about a dream that I had had, and I must confess that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turning into a nightmare. Just a few weeks after I had talked about it, it was when four beautiful Negro girls were murdered in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. He said, I watched that dream turn into a nightmare as I moved through the ghettos of the nation and saw my black brothers and sisters perishing in a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity and saw the nation doing nothing to grapple with the Negroes problem of poverty. I saw that dream turn into a nightmare as I watched my black brothers and sisters in the midst of anger and understandable outrage in the midst of their hurt. He's talking about the 1965 Watts riots here in particular that that deeply impacted Dr. King. He said in the midst of their disappointment turned to misguided riots to try to solve that problem. I saw that dream turn into a nightmare as I watched the war in Vietnam escalating. yes, I am personally the victim of deferred dreams, blasted hopes. Now, at the end of their respective lives, the the trajectories of Dr. King and of Malcolm X uh, were increasingly converging, with Martin becoming the radical king and Malcolm becoming increasingly inclusive and increasingly open to working in coalition for the human rights of all people that happened especially on the other side of his hajj um, when he traveled to Mecca. And as we prepare to go deeper into how Dr. King and Malcolm X influenced one another, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that Martin and Malcolm did actually meet one single time in person. It was Tuesday, March 26, 1964. And the place was a building that has been at the center of recent headlines. They met the one single time at the United States Capitol building. The House of Representatives had passed the Civil Rights Act, which uh, came to be the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but at that time, the bill was being filibustered in the Senate by racists. After Dr. King gave a press conference, one of Malcolm X's assistants made sure that they not only ran into one another, but also did so in front of the press corps. Dr. King did not expect to encounter Malcolm X that day, but I'll share my screen with you to show what happened on that occasion. Without hesitation, Dr. King extended his hand and said, Well, Malcolm, good to see you. Malcolm accepted his handshake and said, good to see you. They proceeded to walk and talk down the halls of the Senate while the press corps took pictures. Looking ahead, Martin and Malcolm would never develop a close personal friendship, but their personal political visions would grow closer together throughout their lives. A mythology surrounds the legacies of Martin and Malcolm. King is most comfortably portrayed as the nonviolent insider, while Malcolm is characterized as the by any means necessary political renegade. And there's truth in both of those um, mythologies. But the messier, more complex reality is that toward the end of both of their respective lives, and I, we can only wish that they had been able to play out these trajectories, we see that Malcolm was increasingly becoming a savvy political operative open to building coalitions with white allies, and that Martin was becoming an increasingly radical social prophet. And even as I think it is important to emphasize their convergence, let me say just a little bit about their difference in methods. Malcolm said in 1962 that I'll never take part in a sit-in because if someone forces me with a club or attacks, I would have to rely on my equity, my God-given rights, and use the same force in retaliation. Similarly, two years later in 1964, the same year that Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, Malcolm said, Black people shouldn't be willing to be nonviolent unless white people are also willing to be nonviolent. He's like, let's just all play by the same rules. And even though I deeply respect the nonviolent approach of Dr. King and Gandhi and think it can be tremendously effective, and I hope it's used more in our world, I can also hear where Malcolm X is coming from. With that being said, let me also give you another important and undertold story about their collegiality and increasing convergence. The very next year after he said that, uh, in 1965, when Dr. King was in jail during part of the Selma to Montgomery marches, Malcolm X was also in town. And uh, at a point when he and uh, Coretta Scott King were on a dais together, we have, so we have this photo of, of this being said, he spoke privately to Dr. King's wife, Coretta, and he said, Mrs. King, will you tell Dr. King that I'm sorry that I won't get to see him? I had planned to visit him in jail, but I have to leave. I want him to know I didn't come here to make his job more difficult. I thought that if white people understood what the alternative was, they would be willing to listen to Dr. King. There was a profound respect between Dr. King and Malcolm X in spite of their differences. I'm going to... I plan to say a lot more about Dr. King. I've said a lot more in the past about Dr. King. I'll say more in the future. I'm going to say more about Malcolm X as well in future years. But for now, as I begin to move toward my conclusion, for anyone that wants to dive deeper into the details, in the meantime, one good starting point is historian, historian Tenniel Joseph's recent book that I mentioned earlier, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, James Cone's earlier study, Martin and Malcolm in America, is also powerful. But before either of those books, the first person to blaze the ground that we've been exploring was not surprisingly James Baldwin. Perhaps no other person spent more time respectively with both Martin and Malcolm than James Baldwin. And in 1972, Baldwin published a moving and insightful essay in Esquire magazine titled Martin and Malcolm. I'll share with you just a few lines. Baldwin wrote, by the time each met his death, there was practically no difference between them. What made Malcolm unfamiliar and dangerous was not his hatred of white people, but his love of blacks, his apprehension of the horror Of the Black condition and the reasons for it and his determination so to work on their hearts and minds that they would be enabled to see their condition and change it for themselves. Dr. Joseph adds an important gloss on Baldwin's perspective. He says that Baldwin remembered Malcolm as a master teacher who believed in Black dignity even when most Negroes would not dare to believe in Black dignity for themselves. And King believed in the idea of America more than America did. Today, the twin legacies of Dr. King and Malcolm X, as well as of so many other racial justice activists surrounding them, challenge us to live out our UU first principle to create a world that truly recognizes, celebrates and supports the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Both Martin and Malcolm were taken from us far too soon, but as many of you have heard me say before, if you want to know what would Dr. King likely be saying or doing if he were alive today to celebrate his 92nd birthday, you need look no further. Than the Reverend Dr. William Barber with the Poor People's Campaign. He is in many ways saying and doing what King would be saying and doing today. So later, Google the Poor People's Campaign, look at what Barber is doing. It's also significant to note that the Reverend Raphael Warnock, born the year after, so he was born in 1969. He was born the year after Dr. King was assassinated in 68. Uh, Reverend Warnock is now both the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Dr. King was co-pastor in the final decade of his life, and he's also senator-elect from Georgia. He is another person we can look to in addition to the Reverend Dr. William Barber as an example of what Dr. King might be doing if he were alive today. Now, if you want to know what Malcolm X would likely be doing or saying if he were still with us, especially the person and leader that Malcolm was becoming uh, in the, at the end of his life, look at what the Black Lives Matter movement is doing and saying, Google Black Lives Matter later today. Look, as Nicole said earlier, go to that link um, for resources for dismantling racism and white supremacy culture in the upper right-hand corner of our website, frederickuu.org. For now, I will give the final word to James Cone from the end of his book, Martin and Malcolm and America that speaks to the legacy that both Martin and Malcolm leave us today. He said, we must declare where we stand on the great issues of our time. Racism is one of them. Poverty is another. Sexism, another. Class exploitation, another. Imperialism, another. We must break the cycle of violence in America and around the world. Human beings are meant for life, not death. We are meant for freedom and not enslavement. We must break down the barriers that separate us from one another. For Martin, for Malcolm, for America and the world, and for all who have given their lives in the struggle for justice. Let us direct our flight toward one goal, the beloved community. In that spirit of working together in coalition for collective liberation, when we all get free, let's sing together, circle round for freedom.